Hello and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy and we are on day 25 of the Camino Nascente. And this is our last night in the Alentejo. We're in a town called Niza. And so a great part of this journey is about to come to an end. Yeah, and so far it's been most of the journey up to now. We had a few days in the Algarve at the very beginning, but then most of these 25 days we've spent in the Alentejo, which is a region that we really come to love, I would say. Um, and yeah, so we thought we would take a bit of time to reflect and talk about some of the things that we've learned about this region and its traditions and things that are particular and specific to the Alentejo. Right, and I think if we look back at the Camino Portuguese that we walked last year, we probably weren't really as aware as we are this time of changing from one region to another. When you walk in Spain, you're a little bit more aware because the regions are very famous and you go from Navarra to La Rioja and to Castilla and Leon uh, to Galicia, for example, on the Camino Frances. Um, but last year, we probably weren't you know, paying attention exactly to that, those exact moments when you move from one region to another. But it seems really important in this case because the Alentejo is such a big part of this Camino and because we've been using this uh, guidebook or booklet that we've been talking about, which is provided for the Alentejo sections only of this Camino. So actually from tomorrow we're going blind and mm. we don't really know what's coming. Yeah, I mean, we already felt like we were going blind going into this whole Camino experience. But yeah, starting tomorrow, going into Beta, I really know very, very little about that region. Um, yeah, and it's, I mean, the Alentejo we had been to before, a few of the cities and towns that we've traveled through on this Camino we had already visited as tourists before, but Beta, yeah, I don't know anything about it. Um, so that'll be a, an exciting new adventure and lots of things to discover there as well, I'm sure. Um, but I'm going to miss the Alentejo because I've really grown fond of it. Yeah, definitely, and, and so have I. Um, and this Camino has been full of surprises, so I'm sure that's going to continue uh, as we continue. And we have, uh, I think, around 10 stages left until we're at the end of the Camino Nascent. Um, so as you mentioned, we're taking this opportunity to reflect on some of the local traditions of the Alentejo that we've discovered and experienced as we've been walking through this area. And, you know, in the last episode, we talked about these villages, these very tiny villages that we spent some time in during the very first part of the Camino in the Alentejo. So for the first three days of walking, apart from Myrtola, basically the only settlements we saw were these tiny villages, with mm -hmm. populations ranging from between two and maybe 20 or, so, or 30 or something like that. Um, after that, we started to pass and stay in settlements that were much bigger, the villages were bigger, and then even some towns, and then coming up to a, a large town like Evora, uh, or even a small city. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the traditions that we've uh, come across are related to some of these towns. Um, and so you, I guess you, in certain cases, you need a larger population to come up with these traditions uh, in the first place. Yeah, that makes sense, sure. And so after we spent this time in these villages, we had a stretch where we spent five consecutive days walking. At the end of each of those days, we were in a historic town. And these towns were Beja, Cuba, Alvito, Viana del Alentejo, and then finally Évora. And Évora is the provincial capital. It's probably the one place that in the Alentejo that people who are coming from outside of Portugal for maybe a holiday in Portugal have heard of or are planning to visit 
uh, during their stay in Portugal uh, because it's a beautiful city and we had been to it before before we even moved to Portugal we'd uh, stayed in Évora mm-hmm. um, but some of these other towns we were less familiar with but a lot of these traditions uh, sort of were born in in some of these towns and some of them are very very localized and very specific to one town yeah and there are only and we're going to talk about you know uh, types of artisanal artistry there may be only a handful like three four or five people artisans who are actually working this craft nowadays so yeah it's very localized all right so we'll start with one tradition that we haven't really experienced that much but because you mentioned it in the introduction episode to this season we should get to it mm-hmm. and this is cante a la tejan yes and i believe that i mispronounced it i'm pretty sure that i was calling it canto a la tejano uh, but it's actually cante so with an E on the end instead of an O on the end. Um, but yeah, it's a type of singing, a type of song, uh, as I think we've discussed it a little bit before. It's uh, a cappella, so it's only vocal. There's no uh, a, m- instrumental accompaniment of any kind. It's just people singing with their voices. Right, so the day that we arrived in Évora, we had an interesting day. I think we can say we walked right. around 36 kilometers to get to Evra. And what made it particularly difficult was that about 15 kilometers were on quite a busy road. Mm-hmm. And we really just had to walk on the asphalt. Uh, there was basically no shoulder mm-hmm. and there were cars passing a, a lot. And we knew this going in. And I think the official guide says something like, oh, you either love or hate this stage, which is a, a way of saying you're going to hate it. Right. <laughs> yeah, we read between the lines and knew that this was going to be a tough day. And it was, you know, definitely the least enjoyable day of walking that we've had on this Camino, perhaps of any Camino, because honestly, it was it was a really bad stretch of road. Um, but most of this Camino has not been like that. There, overall, there's been very little road walking. We've been out on dirt tracks and in pasture lands, and it's been beautiful. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of road walking, and it was also just an extremely long day. And I knew that my feet were not cut out for it. It ended up being something like 35 kilometers. Um, actually, I held up much better than I had anticipated. Um, buying a bag of ice at the beginning of the day was certainly a good idea because um, those ice foot baths really helped. But uh, yeah, we were, I was totally wiped out by the time we got to Evera and I vowed not to leave the bed as soon as we arrived in the hostel. And so I, I stuck to that. <laughs> However, you did not. Right, so that's a bit of a tangent. To make a long story short, uh, when we got to Evra, it was already quite late. It was about 6.30 in the evening, um, but I decided to go for a walk, as I called it, mm. uh, after we'd just been walking for 10 hours or whatever it was. And um, it happened that there was a big football game that night, and it was the night, ultimately, that Sporting clinched the league title here in Portugal for the first time in 19 years. And even though it's a Lisbon team, um, it's got fans all over the country, as we've discovered. And so just before the game was starting, the bars in Evera were really packed with people who were there, uh, you know, having a couple of drinks before the game was on. And uh, and so I was just walking down the street and I heard this Cantela Sejano coming from one of the bars. And I didn't realize about the football game at that time. So I thought, oh, this is nice. You just sort of walk in the middle of the week down the street and everywhere and you hear this song uh, coming from the bars. And so I took a little recording of it so I could show it to you. Um, and then I think when I came back, I said, oh, we'll probably just see it tomorrow night as well because we had a rest day in Evra. Um, 
but we didn't and no. we haven't heard it again um, and so I just caught a, a little um, a little part of it uh, that one day but a few days before that when we were in this town of Cuba or Cuba as we would say in English um, this was supposed to be throughout the whole Alentejo I think the the place where Cantalete Janu is most famous yeah we didn't realize that until Mesquita was where we first heard about it um, the owner, uh, Cesar, who we've talked about before, the owner of the, um, well, of everything that's going on in Mesquita at the moment, the albergue and the restaurants and everything. He, we had asked him, where can we see or hear Cantala Tejano? And he said, Cuba is probably going to be your best bet. And I think that that was good advice. We just were a little bit un- unlucky and that we didn't see it. But we definitely saw lots of evidence in Cuba of the fact that Cantala Tejano is a very big thing there. Um, and we asked at the tourism office if they could recommend a place where we might listen to it and they told us oh not really because it's just a very spontaneous thing that happens in the taverns you know people go there and have a few drinks with friends and then they just spontaneously burst into song which is a really beautiful thing but it means that you have to be lucky and be there at the right time it's not like with Fado for example in Lisbon where there are places called Casas de Fado, Fado Houses, um, that have like a dinner and show and you go there and you know that you're going to hear Fado. But it's it's kind of done for tourists. Um, it's not, you know, authentic in the way that this Cantela Tejano in the taverns is. Right. But even, I mean, there are other Fado Houses in Lisbon that, are, that aren't the tourist places. Yeah. They're kind of more... Uh, Tashkas uh, or sort of local bars, but you still know usually that there's going to be photo on a given night. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so at the tourism office, actually it wasn't a tourism office. Uh, it was the interpretation <laughs> center for the theory that Christopher Columbus comes from this town of Cuba and not the standard uh, narrative that he comes from Genoa in Italy. And I think you mentioned that in the introduction episode as well. Mm-hmm. And th- this town of Cuba is all in on this theory. Mm-hmm. And so their main square of their town is called Christopher Columbus Square. There's a statue of him in that square. And then this interpretation center where they present all of the supposed evidence uh, tying Columbus to this town of Cuba and Portugal in general. Um, and so, as you mentioned, we asked about the Cantela Zuzanu, and she actually gave us um, the tourist map of the city, which has the the Hot uh, de Tavernas, which is the the tavern route and essentially the glorified pub crawl that you mentioned last time. Right. And so there are five taverns that were that are marked on the map. And then she had mentioned one in particular, or just as a, the one that she recommended. And so we decided to just go there and see what would happen. It was late afternoon, it wasn't even the evening, so we probably knew that we weren't going to just hear this Cantela Tashano straight away. Um, and so we went to this tavern and then we were at the spot where we thought it was, but then we thought we weren't at the right spot because the door was more like a door to a garage or a warehouse. It was a very large door and not just a door to a bar. And there was a sign seemed like maybe it was right, but it wasn't exactly the name that we had. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of looking around thinking, is it across the street or is it a couple of doors further down? Have we missed it? And then a guy came and start, he had keys and he was sort of starting to open the door. And we said, oh, is, is this this particular tavern that we're looking for? And then he didn't say anything. And then there was another guy across the street and then 
he said, yes, yes, this is it. And then we were sort of like, well, who's this guy? And then, and then we, I think we turned back to the first guy with the keys and said, is this the tavern? And he still didn't say anything. And then the other guy said, he can't speak. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that he was deaf as well. Um, so, but he, I think he had come by on his bike. And uh, I think he just saw that we were looking around and that we were interested in the tavern. And I still don't know exactly what his relationship is to the tavern, but he had the keys. And so he decided, okay, I'll stop and I'll let them in. And I'm pretty sure he did it just for us. And we were the only people there. And so then, yeah, he poured us some wine, which we'll talk about because it was a special kind of wine. Um, he, you know, gave us some little snacks, some olives and bread and everything. He showed us around. He showed us into some kind of hidden parts that we wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. And it was a really amazing experience, a totally different experience from what we were looking for. You know, we were trying to find the Cantale Tijano and, and, this was a totally deserted bar and it was obviously we were not going to hear it there, but we actually had a really amazing experience there in a different way. Right. So a couple of points is that the bread and the olives and a quarter of liter of wine, he just gave it all to us and charged us one euro yep. in total for all of that. <laughs> um, but of course, as soon as he had opened the doors, I mentioned that the doors were very large, like a warehouse, and we were straight in, not into the bar, but into the cellar. Mm-hmm. And it's this amazing cellar. It looks really, it was, it was just something that we didn't really expect. And we, you know, we still weren't really sure if this was the right place or not, but he just opened the doors and suddenly we're in this cellar and, um, and it was just very well presented and, and very authentic and everything. And so then the actual bar part is sort of in the back. Um, but we got to walk through and, and, and see all this wine. So it turned out that the wine that he gave us was this special kind of wine. And I think we'd been seeing the name for the previous couple of days. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really know what it was. And it's Vinu d'Italia. turns out that Italia uh, is this particular large jar or large, uh, like an amphora, mm-hmm. which holds this wine. Yeah, like a huge container where you would hold hundreds of liters of wine, maybe, you know, a thousand or more liters of wine. And so when we walked into the cellar, we saw all of these Italias, all of these jars, and there were probably... I don't know, about 10 of them, but as you said, they can each hold, yeah, maybe hundreds of liters of wine. But the wine itself uh, is special too. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very particular wine from, yeah, from the Alentejo. And uh, I don't know if Cuba, if that's another thing that Cuba is particularly famous for or not, but that's definitely where we saw it the most and heard about it the most. Um, it doesn't taste like normal wine, and I don't really know how to describe it exactly. It had pretty a pretty mild taste, I would say. It, I mean, this sounds bad, but it kind of tasted like watered down wine to me. <laughs> um, and the the type that he gave us, because you know, well, obviously, normally you would have red wine or white wine, or you could also have rosé wine. Uh, so the Vigna d'Italia also comes in different colors. Uh, with, I think it comes in red and white, but then it also comes in what we got, which is called Petroleiro, um, because it, I believe, that I assume that the name comes from the fact that it looks like the color of petrol, of gasoline. <laughs> because it was a white and red combined. Yeah, it's basically the white and the red and white grapes mixed together that make this kind of golden hue but you know much more much darker than a regular white wine 
Right. And, and you said that maybe this is a specialty in Cuba in particular, and we didn't see it ever again, I don't think. No. Uh, after that. So maybe it is. And maybe this one tavern that we just kind of stumbled across is, is one of the centers of the production of it. Um, but yeah, so we went looking for one local tradition and we got another tradition instead. Yeah, which, you know, that was, that was really awesome. And I think it's sometimes that's how things go and you just need to be open to, to whatever comes along and don't, you know, have too many expectations about how things are supposed to go because it probably won't, but you might end up having a really great experience anyway. All right, so having spoken about wine, our next local tradition is about food. And there is a dish that's very common in the Alentejo, and we had known about it and eaten it before, and it's called migash. And if you see this on a menu, if you have for example, an English menu at a Portuguese restaurant or an Altejano restaurant, this will usually be translated as breadcrumbs. Mm. And you'll see it in kind of the main dishes and you'll just see breadcrumbs. <laughs> and it seems like that would be an unusual dish. Uh-huh. So, but that's kind of true. But what are migas? Yeah. So, I mean, the word can be used to mean breadcrumbs. I guess literally that is what it means. But when you're talking about a dish, then it's stale bread that has been, you know, um, crumbled up into breadcrumbs, um, but then mixed with other things, mixed with, well, it's softened up with probably water, probably oil. I'm sure there's olive oil in there in most cases as well. And, uh, you know, you might have cilantro or other spices and things like the herbs and spices. Um, so it's usually an accompaniment. It's your kind of starchy uh, part of your plate. Instead of having rice or pasta or bread, you would have migash that could be accompanied with some other kind of meat or vegetable or fish dish. Right. And so it sometimes also comes with potato inside, which is a specialty of a town called Kratu, which we were in a couple of days ago, although we didn't actually find it there. Right. But we'd been told uh, earlier that it was a specialty there. Um, I thought that was El Terre du Chon, where it was the Migas de Batata was supposed to be. Okay, well, that was one town before, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah, well, because we did eat it, but it was in Mesquita, right? And... Um, that was when we first heard about it was from Cesar, who we've talked about many times. And um, the way that I understood him telling the story was that his grandmother had invented this dish um, because, well, she called it migas de batata, so uh, potato migas, but it was actually made all with potato instead of bread. So there was no bread in there. It was just potatoes and olive oil and garlic. I think those were the the only three ingredients in the whole dish, and it was delicious. Um, and so, yeah, I I posted on my Instagram and said, "Oh, we had this dish that was invented by Cesar's grandmother." And then someone replied and said, "No, that's um, we have that dish in Alto du Chão as well, and it's famous here." And then I actually read that somewhere, but we didn't see it in Alto du Chão, so we only had it that one time in Mesquita. But it is a particular a type of migas that you find in the Alentejo in addition to the bread type of migas. And then the other thing that's interesting about food is just as we're coming to the very northern part of the Alentejo, the Alto Alentejo, we just started to see in the last couple of days very localized specialties uh, to specific towns here, and we got to try one of those today. 
which is the Feijão das Festas, or Feijões das Festas, you right. could also say. So, beans party. <laughs> <laughs> yep, if you want to translate it literally. Uh, Feijão is beans, and usually it's in the singular, although the way I saw it written on the menu today was Feijões, so plural beans. Um, beans of the parties. Um, party beans. Uh, I'm not sure why it's called that. I assume that they do eat it at you know, local festivals, um, because it's very common for each town and village to have its own festival day, which is usually the day of the patron saint of that, that village or that town. So I'm guessing that people eat it then, but they also obviously eat it at other times too, because there were lots of people eating it at the restaurant where we went to today, which was also called Quintal das Festas or da Festa. Um, so... Maybe that's where it all began. I'm not entirely sure, but it does seem to be a very local thing to Niza, which is where we are now. Right. So it's a bean soup, basically, with bread already in the soup, some mm -hmm. kind of soggy bread, which also is similar to another famous Portuguese dish, which is called asorda, mm -hmm. which is a kind of usually a fish bread stew. Um, and so maybe, the, maybe there's a connection there between those two dishes as well. Yeah. Yeah, there could be. So yeah, we asked for bread when we ordered the soup. We said, bring us some bread too. And he said, he said it already comes with bread or there's already bread in it or something like that. And I just understood that to me. No, we'll bring you the bread and that'll be included in the price of the soup. But no, it actually meant that there were whole chunks of bread that were in the soup, kind of swimming in the soup. Right, because we hadn't heard of this soup until yesterday, probably. Yeah. And um, apparently in this area, there are two famous soups. There's this one, which is a bean and sometimes tomato soup. And the other one has pork, blood and guts. Yeah, that was actually the English translation in one of the guides was blood and guts soup, which is accurate, but not very appealing. Certainly not appealing to me because I don't eat any animal products. But I think even for someone who does, if you said, here's some blood and guts soup, they probably wouldn't want to eat that. All right. So moving on. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned in the introduction episode was cork. And mm -hmm. that you were hoping to see cork trees and find out a little bit more about cork production. And we've certainly done that. Oh, yeah, we have done that. And it's interesting that when we were walking in the Algarve, the first few days of this Camino, we saw a lot of pine trees. That was probably the dominant tree that we saw. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as we moved into the Alentejo, we started seeing different trees. And we started seeing a lot of holm oak trees. And because cork is a type of oak, Mm -hmm. I guess at first we thought that they were cork trees, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. uh, and we kind of realized soon enough because we could see that they weren't actually being used to extract cork because you can, it's very obvious to see this because the bottom part of the trunk is different. That's where all the cork comes from. Um, and so we saw that there were trees that kind of looked like cork trees, but they didn't have that. And, and it turned out that these were home oak trees. And sort of gradually as we moved north through the Alentejo, we started to see a few cork trees. And then when we got to, I guess, the central part of the Alentejo, we started to see you know, huge numbers of cork trees. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now they've become, you know, a big part of the landscape that we've been walking through for days and days now. And um, it's something that I will definitely associate with this Camino. And yeah, it's something mm -hmm. we see a lot of. But we were already seeing less and less the past few days compared with the mm -hmm. few days before that. So I think we kind of went through that, the peak cork area of the Alentejo, which was more in the kind of central Alentejo. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's a really nice... Uh, 
tree to, to see or it, it does really form a nice part of the landscape because the cork trees aren't planted you know in rows mm -hmm. in ways that make it look like uh, kind of industrial agriculture yeah they're just they just kind of look like wild trees mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they're you know on plains and other times they're kind of in almost in forests and so it's been really interesting to see them mm -hmm. and when we were close to an area called Evermont, which is where we saw the most cork trees. Uh, we'd been told that just in the, the town before Evermont, which we were going to pass through on the way there, there was a cork uh, production center, I guess you could call it. It's called Cortisarte. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Portuguese, cork is cortisa and art is art. Um, and so it's just a play on words. Basically, it's a, a place called Cork Art. And that you could go there and get a kind of tour and they would sort of explain to you how what they do with cork and how they get it off the trees and all that kind of stuff. And this was a little detour off the Camino, about one to one and a half kilometers each way. Um, and it was a sort of longish, hottish day. And so at a certain point, we thought, oh, should we do this or not? Maybe it'll, maybe we'll just go to a shop and, and they'll try and sell us cork stuff. Yeah, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Yeah, I thought it could be really cool or it could be just, you know, a glorified shop. But it actually was really cool and it was, it was. really worth going there. And so we had a little tour. The guy, uh, David, gave us a, a, a tour uh, and, and spent probably half an hour, an hour with us mm -hmm. um, just talking about cork. And that was really great because we didn't really know anything about it and we were asking very basic questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then we just got such a, a great you know, understanding, still at a basic level, um, but an understanding of it and it just made it more interesting as then we subsequently walked through and walked past all these cork trees in the next few days after that. Yeah, um, because it has been such a big part of the landscape that we've been walking through, it was great to have that background information and understand a little bit more about how it works. You know, for example, you see these numbers that are painted onto the trees. Every, every tree has a number from zero to nine, uh, on the trunk and we had seen those white numbers painted on the trees and didn't understand why and then he explained why and it all makes sense and um, so yeah it's, it just gives us a bit of a better understanding of what we're walking through. Right and it is worth actually explaining the numbers because yeah. it's a single number and so you kind of see a lot and usually you'll see the same number on trees that are kind of next to each other right and so you'll see all these sixes and then you think, okay, maybe the owner or whatever of these trees, maybe six is his number or <laughs> something like, you know, we just have no idea. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that cork trees, um, the cork is extracted every nine years. And so when they extract the tree, they write the last digit of the actual year mm -hmm. on the tree. And they only need to do the last digit. So if there is a six, that means that they took cork in 2016. Mm -hmm. And because it's a nine-year cycle they can never get confused with this. It means the next time is 2025, and then when they take the cork then, they'll write a five on the tree instead, mm -hmm. and then they'll know the next one is 2034. And so that's why they only write the one number instead of the four numbers of the year. If they'd written 2016, we obviously would have understood what that meant, but we've just seen the six. Uh, and so it's just been interesting. Since then, we've been able to look at these numbers and then understand where that tree is in the cycle. Mm -hmm. So, for example, now being 2021, uh, if we see a zero, that means that it was taken last year. And so it's just at the beginning of regenerating uh, at the beginning of that nine year cycle. And so that's been really interesting just to just to see that and to see yeah, what the different trees look like with different numbers and how far advanced they are in, in their regeneration. And also the fact that 
they only ever take cork from the bottom part of the trunk and there seems to be a lot of a lot of tree left that they could take cork from uh, but one of the reasons he said they didn't is that then if the more you take the more energy the tree has to uh, has to produce to regenerate itself and then you get the cork you get isn't of as high quality yeah so there are a lot of factors at play and you know it's it's uh, something that you have to really know a lot about and be very skilled at and to, to work in this field. But at the same time, it's very primitive in terms of the tools that they use and things like that. You know, he showed us and he was kind of laughing about it and saying, here's our high technology that we use to extract the cork. And it was an axe, um, an axe and a knife and, you know, tools that would have been used hundreds of years ago. Um, and that's still the way that they do it uh, because it has to be such a delicate process that there are no machines that are precise enough or can, you know, have the, the knowledge that the humans have to know when they have to stop cutting, you know, how far can they go without hurting the tree and damaging the tree um, so that it won't, it's not going to produce in the future. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting um, industry that I didn't know very much about, and now I do. And then the other reason that it's interesting for us is that we live in Lisbon, and Portugal is a massive producer of cork, I believe the biggest in the world. Yeah. And in Lisbon, a lot of the tourist shops sell cork products, uh, and these can be things like handbags or even dresses or even shoes. Um, and so you have a cork handbag. My mum has a cork handbag that she bought when she was here on holiday. Uh, and so it was just interesting to find out more about this whole process. Yeah, and I had always assumed that the reason that there were so many souvenirs made out of cork was because the cork industry was dying or was suffering from the fact that the wine industry wasn't using corks as much or, you know, the actual material cork to cork the, the bottles, the wine bottles. And so they were diversifying. But in the tour, David said, no, that's not that's not really true. Like, yes, some wine producers have switched to other materials, but the wine industry has also grown. And so there's lots more wine being produced. And so overall, there's still just about the same amount of cork being used in the wine industry. And the stuff that you see in the souvenir shops, that's just a tiny, tiny fraction of of the whole cork production and that it basically all goes in. Most of it goes into wine. So sticking a little bit with the artisanal theme, uh, we've also discovered a couple of different types of pottery or different examples of pottery making in the Alentejo. And there's a bit of a backstory to this, which is that when we lived in Switzerland, we came to Lisbon for a weekend, and this was probably nine years ago now. And we were wandering in Alfama, which is this famous neighborhood in Lisbon, and we came across this shop. And it was an unusual shop because it wasn't a, it wasn't a tourist souvenir shop. It was kind of half a grocery store and then half selling kitchenware and houseware kind of items, plates and bowls and other sorts of things. And the plates and bowls were all made with terracotta and they were all really nice. But they weren't the ones that sort of say Portugal on them and things like that. They were very simple, just uh, just terracotta and with uh, the plates just had a little kind of abstract flower, kind of a couple of dots and a couple of uh, lines to sort of represent a flower. And we really liked them. And so we went in there and 
we were only there for the weekend and we bought a lot of stuff. <laughs> we bought plates and some bowls, um, bowls for olives. And mm-hmm. I think we bought a tray as well. And we bought like an oven, a casserole dish. And, you know, all of this was made out of, you know, it all matched. It was all made out of this terracotta. And we took this back in our carry-on luggage back to Lisbon on the plane. I don't it's know. Just, how, yeah, it's a crazy thing for us to have done, looking back on it. Yeah, I don't know how we fit it all in, but we just, I guess we decided we needed new plates or a new look or something for our, for our home. And so we just bought all this stuff. Anyway, and then a few years later, we decided to move to Lisbon and we did. And then once we moved there, <clears throat> I thought, I wonder if I can find this shop again. And so I kind of had a vague idea of where it was. And so we went on a little mission to see if we could find it again. And we eventually we did find it. And we were very excited by this, probably more so than the guy in the shop. But we basically went in there and said, a few years ago, we bought all this stuff from your shop and we took it back to Switzerland. And now we live here and we're going to buy some more stuff and we're going to have it in our house here. And I don't know if that meant anything to him. Um, But we just really liked the simple kind of earthenware dishes. Mm Mm-hmm. And on this Camino, when we were in a town called Viana do Alentejo, we saw someone making these exact dishes. Right. And so that was really cool. And so it was a, it was a store where it's basically a, it's basically his workshop and a shop uh, at the same time. And, but his workshop is right there. You walk in and you see him actually on the wheel, you know, making pottery. Mm-hmm. And then you can see the finished products right there as well. And we actually started talking to him for quite some time. Um, because he was aware of the Camino and he he was just saying some things about how he thought this Camino Ascent, which is just beginning, was going to get bigger in a few years. People just needed to find out about it and things like that. So you were sort of chatting with him quite a bit while I was taking photos of his dishes, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was interesting. Just And I don't know if that particular style you know, originated in Viana do Alentejo or if it's made elsewhere, or if the plates that we bought in Lisbon originally came from the Alentejo or, or, or whatnot, but it sort of seemed like it. Yeah, I was talking to him about it, and he he pointed to some other dishes, not exactly like the ones that we have, but some that had um, kind of a more elaborate design, and said that those were very specific to the Alentejo, and that you would only find them here. And then I think the ones that are like ours are kind of more generally found in Portugal and you can find them in other places too. But it seems like the Alentejo is a very well-known place within Portugal for pottery of all kinds. And um, there are some, you know, some designs that are very specific to Alentejo, but um, yeah, we've seen different kinds of pottery and different kinds of um, items that are made by potters here, but it's, you know, so that's quite localized too from one town to another, but it seems like in general the region is famous for its pottery. Right, and in particular the town that we're in right now, which is Niza, uh, they're all in on their pottery tradition. They're promoting it like crazy just within the town. Like they'll have roundabouts which will have these stylized uh, jugs on mm-hmm. them. Um, there's a building, just a residential building, which has this huge um, kind of banner with uh, a picture of a pottery jug or jar on it and so we went to a museum today in town which is all about this mm-hmm. uh, and so we saw some examples of these of these jars mm-hmm. and even in fact um, in one of the little alleyways in the street here in Niza instead of the typical uh, Portuguese cobblestones which is Casada Portuguesa they've which is a black and white pattern of stones they've made it this 
an earthen orange color with white that matches the patterns that you see on these jars. Yeah, and the jars are really cool. The patterns are very intricate, and the way that it's done it is not something I've really seen before. So, I mean, the the terracotta is is just typical terracotta, you know, earthenware. But then they take teeny tiny pieces of quartz and um, stick those in to the clay before it dries, to the terracotta before it dries, um, or is fired in the oven or whatever and um, so they make these flower designs and things with hundreds of little tiny pieces of cork of quartz sorry not cork but quartz um, and what I read in the museum was that it's typically the men who do the the shaping the molding of the vessels you know the jars and things and then the women are the ones who do uh, the more detailed work of creating these designs made out of the quartz. Right, so it's like mosaic work yeah. on clay, mm -hmm. uh, which is very interesting. And then the final kind of aspect of this, which we found very interesting today, was that when we were walking on the Camino to get to this town of Pisa, we saw on a couple of occasions a waymarking sign for the Camino, the shell, which was made like this as an homage to the pottery traditions of Niza. And so you'd have... Um, this earthen backdrop, and then the shell itself would be these quartz mosaic little uh, tiles mm -hmm. um, to make the shell. And so that was really cool. And we saw the first one, and we thought, we've never seen a shell like this before. And of course, we hadn't actually reached Nisi yet, so we didn't really understand at that time that that's, that was the point of it. Right. Then when we got to this town and saw this type of work and the, these kinds of patterns everywhere, we understood that the shell uh, was designed to, to look like... Um, the same work that you see on the jars here. Yeah, and it seems like Nisa, or you know, the the local municipality government here is really promoting the Camino uh, in this area. So they seem to be really behind it. Yes, they have two huge banners which are draped on the castle walls or castle gates here, uh, advertising the holy year uh, of twenty twenty one and 2022, because it's now been extended for two years, and that's also on the banner. So they must have um, made the banner fairly recently, because right. that was only announced basically at, on uh, New Year's Eve, I believe, mm -hmm. that they would extend it for one more year. Mm -hmm. um, okay, our last example of handicraft work is also very localized to one town, and the town is Estremoz, and this was a very interesting town, and we spent a rest day there uh, because we arrived quite late, I believe, and uh, we'd already just had a rest day just a few days earlier in Evora, but for some reason we decided to take another one. Well, I think to see the town, because it seems like there were several things of interest there, and we wanted to you know, be able to take the time to explore it, because we didn't know when we would ever go back there. Right. So I'm and glad that we did that. Yeah, because we arrived fairly late, and we could have sort of rushed it and, and run around a little bit and tried to see a few things in the afternoon, but yeah, we took this extra day. Um, and so the thing that this town is famous for is what's called bonecos, uh, which is the Portuguese word for doll, but what it really is... Uh, in this case, is more like figurines and they're clay figurines. Yeah, so it's also a form of pottery. Right. I mean, they're working with the same material. They're just 
shaping it into a different kind of shape with a different function. It's not a jar, you know, that you use, you know, it's not like a functional thing that you use to hold water or wine. It's a, it's a figurine. So, um, but yeah, it's part of the same tradition, I would say. Right. So these are mostly religious figurines, certainly that they make today and probably in the original conception of the idea as well. Um, and so you have figures of saints and other uh, important people like that. And it's interesting because the the pottery here in Nisa is very much pottery. You look at these jars and you can tell that it's pottery um, because you still have the earthen color and you just have these white patterns that you've described. Uh, and so I kind of thought that these dolls or these figurines would be like that. I thought they would just be earthen colored. Um, and I sort of thought that they would be quite... Um, I just sort of had this idea that it wouldn't be an amazing work of art that it would be they would be quite crude okay. and they'd be quite basic figures um you know almost like something a child or a talented child might be able to make you know <laughs> something you might muck around with if you go to pottery class um but they're very elaborate figures and they're painted so that you don't you're not even aware that it's clay right yeah and, you know, I think we went to one particular workshop and saw them in, again, just like we had seen in Vienna du Alentejo, where we saw the potter working inside his workshop and then also selling his goods there in the shop as well. Um, we went to the same kind of workshop in Estremoz and saw someone, uh, one of the artisans, making these dolls. And I think he must be one of the very best and you know, I think his dolls are of very high quality. The price also indicated that. Um, we saw a few price tags and it was not cheap. It's not something you would just pick up as a, you know, as a little souvenir. Yeah, some of these figurines are hundreds of, hundreds of euros. Yeah, yeah. But when you think about the amount of work and time and um, talent and craftsmanship that went into it, then, you know, the price is totally understandable. But we did see a few other dolls, like there was an antique shop that we went into quickly. And uh, so they had a few of those, a few dolls there as well. And they were of a much lesser quality. So maybe there are some that are kind of primitive, you know, the way that you imagined it. But... I think the, the, the high end is something altogether different. Yeah, and I think there are only maybe five workshops, I think, in Estremoz that, that do this. So it's hopefully not dying. Hopefully those people will be able to pass it down to later generations so that they continue to do it. But yeah, it's not something that's mass produced at all. No. It's very much each one done individually by, right. the, by the, art, uh, the artisan. Yeah, and it's a very ancient, well... Uh, it's a tradition that's been around for at least 300 years. And it was interesting. I read that uh, it was in 1935 that a particular professor at a kind of uh, art institute made a real effort to keep it alive because it was dying out then. Um, and so he found one of the women who, who knew how to do it and got her to teach his students to, to try to pass on this tradition. And uh, so it was kind of brought back to life. But I thought that that was interesting that even in the 1930s, it would have already been dying because I would imagine that to be something that would happen in the latter part of the 20th century. And even that someone had the foresight in the 1930s yeah. to try to keep it alive. Yeah. 
So they, that's worked for almost 100 years. It's still alive so far. So hopefully that continues. And it was interesting that prior to 1935, it was exclusively women who made right. these. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's not, or now it seems to be mostly men uh, of the remaining People. I don't know if it's mostly men. The one that we saw was a man. I know there are there are two sisters because we tried to visit their workshop as well, and it's called Irmange Flores, I think the the Flores sisters. Uh, but theirs was closed that day, um, so it's a mix. But yeah, it's no longer exclusively women like it used to be. All right, and just to finish off this episode with. Another tradition that's not local to the Alentejo, but it's also something that we experienced in Eshtemoz, uh, and so it, it's worth talking about, and that is the art of the small polished tile, or azulejo, which is very famous throughout all of Portugal. But there's a brand new museum which opened less than a year ago in Estremoz, and it contains the largest private collection of azulejos in Portugal. And we went there and it was amazing. It was an incredible museum, and it's so interesting to see what you can do when you make a museum, you know, in 2020, um, Mm -hmm. and you don't have to continue to kind of renovate and and update your old museum if you get to start from scratch. Um, And it was in this kind of old palace, and so it was very roomy. The rooms were very spacious, high ceilings and everything, so they had a great space to be able to display all these azulejos. But just the way that the tiles were presented, the way that they were lit... Um, and the explanations and everything was really, really fabulously done. It was. And in Lisbon, we have the National Tile Museum, and it's been a couple of years since we've been there, but I don't remember being as impressed with that as I was with this one. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because Estremoz, I mean, it's okay, it's a reasonably sizable town as far as this Camino goes, but within the greater context of Portugal, it's not like it's one of the big cities of Portugal. No, definitely not. And so to have this really new and, and interesting museum there is great. Um, because it gets people to go to some of these smaller areas. Mm-hmm. And they told they opened in July of last year, which was right in the middle of the pandemic. But Portugal was just coming out of its first lockdown at that time, or about a month before that. And so we were told by someone there that in August of 2020, they had 10,000 people come, uh, which seemed like a lot during that kind of pandemic period. Yeah, it seems extraordinary. I mean, there were not very many people when we were visiting. There were I only saw a couple of other tourists or visitors there but yeah that's fantastic if they were if they're able to get that many people even during the pandemic and it's very reasonably priced we paid three euros for a ticket and we got a free glass of wine with that yeah and we didn't know that before we went in we probably wouldn't have gone in at 9 a.m if we knew (laughs) that we were getting free wine at the end um but it was fabulous to see you know they they marketed as 800 years of azulejos and the way that they've laid it out it's all chronological and you can really see the development of the art Mm -hmm. and the other aspect of course of azulejos is that both the word and the concept come from the Islamic period. Um, and so it's just another legacy or another heritage of that period in Portugal. And you see at the very beginning, and I really liked the earlier rooms, but you sort of see the more cruder kind of uh, tiles, which aren't that well done. And admittedly, these are the ones that have had to have survived the longest. They're the oldest. Mm. Um, and, and then after that, you sort of start to see the, the tile work getting better but you're seeing just geometric patterns and that's it in the islamic tradition right and then as you move sort of further into the museum and you come out of the middle ages and go into the renaissance you're now seeing 
um, influence from Italy, influence from Flanders, and then you're going into what we now think of as the Portuguese tradition of Azalejus, which are these sweeping scenes, either biblical scenes or historical scenes, where everything's in blue and white. Mm -hmm. But earlier, you're seeing geometric patterns and lots of different colors. And so Portugal really took this art form in a completely different direction from when they inherited it. And it's yeah. interesting just to see that development in the museum. Yeah, and you know it is laid out chronologically, so it is very clear how this progresses right up until the present day. I mean, they have modern uh, azulejos on display there as well, and I thought that part was interesting too to see what people are doing with the art form even now. All right, so that's a little bit of a look at the Alentejo and some of the local traditions that we've discovered along the way. As we said, we're a little bit sad that tomorrow we're going to be crossing a regional border and we'll be finished with the Alentejo, which has been such a big part of this Camino for us. But I'm sure there are plenty of interesting things awaiting us as we continue to Santiago. No doubt. So uh, we will keep pushing onwards and see what else there is to explore. All right, so until next time, bon camino. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.